This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, I'm excited to be here. It's good to see everybody. Um, I'm looking forward to the discussion. That's always the best part. So the paper is called, Is It Rational to Believe in God? Is it rational to believe in God? I hope you won't be disappointed if I say that that's a question that can't be settled adequately in a short talk. I won't even try, really. What I'll do instead is less ambitious, but I hope helpful nonetheless. I'll explore the possibilities and limits for using philosophy to learn about God's existence. Since this is organized by the Thomistic Institute, you won't be surprised to hear that I'll be presenting things in a way with jaw, that jibes with St. Thomas Aquinas's approach. But I won't be doing that just because I was invited by the Thomistic Institute. Instead, I'll be doing it because I think it makes good sense. Here's the order I'll be presenting things in. I'll give a brief sense of what philosophy is in the first place. I'll talk about reasons for believing in God other than as the result of philosophical argumentation. I'll discuss the idea of believing in God on the basis of philosophical argumentation. I'll, then I'll consider the question, if we have used philosophy to come up with philosophical reasons for believing in God, what comes next, philosophically speaking? <clears throat> I'll briefly look at objections to God's existence. And then I'll point out the limitations of philosophy. One, here is a quick account of what philosophy is. It's the use of reason, unaided by divine revelation, to investigate the most foundational questions. In saying unaided by divine revelation, I mean that philosophy doesn't rely on the Bible or any other revelation from God, but instead just tries to figure things out by human reason alone. What I mean by saying the most foundational questions can be explained as follows. If I ask you what the past tense of jump is, you will tell me it's jumped. If I ask you why is it jumped and not jump? It's an interesting question, right? Why not? You don't say run, you say ran. If I ask you, why it's jumped and not jump, you will tell me something about two types of verbs in English. If I ask you what a verb is, you will say something about action or something like that. If I ask you what words are, you will say something about sounds that express thoughts or something like that. The relevant point here is just this. These questions, the series of questions, it keeps getting more and more basic, more and more foundational. The questions keep getting deeper. The deeper or more foundational a question is, the more quote unquote philosophical it is. Probably there's no precise line between the questions that are philosophical and the questions that are not. But if you get as far as asking whether God exists, you're clearly in philosophy territory. So the question is whether we can know that God exists 
and whether we can know it solely on the basis of natural human reasoning powers. Now, I want to talk about how we might come to believe in God on the basis of philosophical investigation and what we would do next, but partly for the sake of completeness and partly for the sake of contrast, I want to indicate some of the ways we might come to believe in God other than by philosophical argumentation. The fact that these aren't the same as philosophical argumentation doesn't automatically make them bad, of course. They have their strengths, maybe they have their weaknesses. I'm not gonna say much about that here, but I wanna say a little something. So the first way we might come to believe in God in a non-philosophical way would be by accepting God's existence on human authority. The authority of our parents, for example, or on the basis of the fact that nearly all humans have believed in God throughout history in some sense. Relying on the authority of others isn't always wrong. For one thing, sometimes there's just no alternative. But from the philosophical standpoint, it's not a very strong kind of support. A second way we might come to believe in God, again, in a non-philosophical way, would be on the basis of experience of God. Perhaps somehow, in some way, I have had an encounter with God and thereby come to know that God exists and even perhaps something of what he's like. The question of whether we can experience God is an extremely complicated one. If God is what Christians say, then we can't experience God by means of our natural powers because God totally transcends our powers. Think of ultraviolet radiation, which falls outside what human vision can see. Or think of the Earth's magnetic field, which sea turtles can sense, but which we can't. Well, God is outside of what we can experience, but in a much more radical way. Therefore, if people can experience God, it's only because God himself intervened to make this possible. We can't just spot God. He has to make his presence available to us. Now then, whether this can happen, what to make of it when it does, it's an important question falls outside the top, the scope of this lecture. But we can reflect, you know, obviously we can reflect, obviously we can reflect philosophically on the possibility of experiencing God. We're doing it a little bit right now. And we can reflect on what such experiences might mean. But that would all be reflection on the basis of something that was not itself the doing of philosophy, right? We could philosophize about it, but it wouldn't be doing philosophy. A third way we might come to believe in God would be through divine faith. By this, I mean accepting something on God's own authority. He reveals it, and therefore we accept it, and we're moved to do so by God's own operation on our mind and will. God teaches us something, and he also moves us to accept his teaching on his say-so rather than because we can conclusively see it for ourselves. So faith in this sense is the starting point for the science of theology, which is often described as faith-seeking understanding. We accept things on faith, and then we go on to reflect on them in, in the hope of understanding them better. The idea that there could be 
legitimately faith in this sense is far from crazy in my view. And if there is faith in this sense, and obviously it would be a great thing to have it, what more reliable starting point could there be than revelation from God? But I'm not going to say much more about that in this talk because accepting things on divine faith is not a philosophical method of inquiry. I want to address the question of believing in God's existence on the basis of philosophical argument. Can we come to believe in God without relying on divine revelation or on any other authority and without having had any spiritual or mystical experiences, but simply on the basis of philosophical reasoning? Now, one approach would be to start with a definition or conception of God and then reason our way to the awareness that God is just the sort of thing that has to exist, that it's self-contradictory to suppose that God does not exist. Here's a very crude form of such an argument. If the word God means a perfect being, then obviously God must exist because otherwise he wouldn't be perfect, in which case he wouldn't be God. Now, as I say, this is not a very sophisticated version of this sort of argument. Better versions are available, and whether they work is something that people love to argue. These, these are the so-called ontological arguments. I don't know why they're called that. They're not ontological. Um, anyway, Aquinas thinks that even in a good version, Arguments like this don't work. Aquinas' strategy is different. For one thing, he doesn't start from a definition of God at all. Aquinas thinks that we can't really get an adequate definition of God's essence. God is too transcendent, too far above us for that to work. So instead of reasoning from definition to existence, Aquinas reasons from effect to cause. Now, of course, we reason from effect to cause all the time. If your window breaks, you reason that something must have struck your window. For example, a baseball. The window breaking is the effect, and the baseball hitting it is the cause. Well, Aquinas uses roughly this sort of reasoning to arrive at the existence not of baseballs, but of God. He actually offers a number of different arguments in a number of different works, but all, or anyway, most of them, fit this general structure of reasoning from effect to cause. Here's an example of that kind of argument, of an argument from effect to cause. The world exists, so therefore the maker of the world exists, and that's God. Is this a good argument? No, <laughs> it's not a good argument. It's a bad argument. It's not a terrible argument, but it's not a good argument. Why? You might say it's a bad argument because we can't reason from effects to causes in the first place. That's a super radical reason for objecting to the argument. Such an objection blocks not only arguments from the world to God, but also arguments from broken windows to baseballs. An objection like this 
undercuts not just arguments about God, but almost all the reasoning found in science, engineering, and everyday life. I'm not going to get into that radical skepticism here. I'm going to take it for granted that we can reason from effects to causes. But the mere fact that we can reason from effects to causes doesn't mean that there's no difficulty in arguing for God's existence. There's a special problem that needs to be dealt with. The problem is that when you reason from effect to cause in the ordinary way, you arrive at a conclusion like this. There's a cause, and it's the sort of thing that could produce the effect that we started from. So for example, if something breaks your window, you can infer that it had enough kinetic energy to break your window. But you can't infer more than that. And you especially can't infer that what broke your window had infinite energy or anything like that. Perhaps you can see how this applies, for, to, how this applies to arguments for the, the existence of God. The argument given earlier went like this. The world exists, therefore a world maker exists. Now, in order to make the world, a world maker would have to be pretty impressive. It would have to be very intelligent and very powerful. But we're supposed to be arguing for the existence of God. We're supposed to be arguing for the existence of something that is infinitely intelligent and infinitely powerful. Because our world is finite, the fact that a world maker made it doesn't prove that the world maker is infinite. But that means that even if we can prove the existence of a world maker, we wouldn't in this way have proved the existence of God. What's more, how do we know that the world maker doesn't have a maker of its own? Little kids ask this question all the time. Who made God? In other words, if there's a world maker, why isn't there a world maker maker? This question is important because if there is a world maker maker, then the world maker isn't God. Some of you may recognize I'm sort of channeling David here. We've been looking at the argument that goes, there's a world, therefore there's a world maker, and that's God. You've probably guessed that Aquinas' argument doesn't go like this. Aquinas-style arguments are indeed arguments from effects to cause, but they don't say nearly that when there's an effect, there must be a cause. They argue that when there are effects and causes, there must ultimately be an ultimate cause, not just a cause, but an uncaused cause. This is how you arrive at the existence of God. So how do you argue for an uncaused cause? So roughly, I just want to talk a little bit about how it goes. It's very, very, um, it's very big. It's a huge topic. How do you argue for an uncaused cause? Roughly, very roughly, you argue like this. Things around us have causes. Those causes might themselves have causes. If so, then the original causes are caused causes. And their causes might be caused causes themselves. But it can't go on like this forever. 
at some point you have to reach an uncaused cause. The crux of it all is the claim that it can't go on forever. Why not? Why can't we have an effect that comes from a cause that comes from a cause backwards forever? The reason is that caused causes depend on their causes and it's not possible for everything that exists to be dependent. Ultimately, there has to be something independent. Without that, there literally wouldn't be anything at all. Let me provide some images or comparisons to make this more concrete. First, think of light shining from a mirror. Well, mirrors just don't shine all by themselves. They only reflect light that is shined on them. In short, they need to be illuminated. Now, a mirror can reflect light that comes from another mirror. That happens all the time, actually. But it can't go on like this forever. If it's just mirrors all the way back, you'd have nothing but darkness. You need something that doesn't just reflect light, but that emits it as a source. At some point, you need a light bulb or a sun. You need an unilluminated illuminator. Second, think of a boxcar in motion. Boxcars don't just move. They need to be pulled. A boxcar can, of course, be pulled by another boxcar. That happens all the time but it can't go on like this forever. It can't be boxcars all the way down the line. At some point, you need a locomotive. You need an unpulled puller. So it's okay for a cause to be dependent, but it's not okay for every cause to be dependent. Think of it this way. Suppose we agree that I'm going to buy your laptop. I say that, I'd like you to hand it over right now, and I'll give you the $500 tomorrow. Suspicious, you ask me to show you the $500. Well, I say, I don't have it right now, but I'll be borrowing it from my brother. Suspicious, you ask my brother to show you the $500. Well, he doesn't have it right now, but he'll be borrowing it from his poker buddy. It's okay if it goes back like this for five steps or 500 steps, but at some point, someone actually has to have the $500. Not everyone can be borrowing. It's okay to borrow from someone who is himself borrowing, but somewhere down the line, there has to be a lender who isn't himself a borrower. There has to be a source that doesn't itself receive from some prior source. The guy with the $500, I mean the guy who actually has it in his hands, is different from all the other guys. The other guys, even if they are lenders, are also borrowers. But the guy with the money is a non-borrowing lender. He's a creditor who isn't a debtor. He actually owns the money. He's like a light bulb rather than a mirror like a locomotive rather than a boxcar. So the series of causes ends in something that's very different from all the other things. In this. We've been exploring analogies. 
that are meant to get you thinking about the difference between caused and uncaused causes. But they are only analogies. Light bulbs, locomotives, guys with $500 are uncaused relative to mirrors, relative to boxcars, relative to borrowers. But in truth, they are themselves also caused causes, a truly uncaused cause, something that was uncaused in every respect would be far more different from everything else. The fact that the argument ends in something so different, so very, very different, is what opens up the possibility that the argument ends with God. The argument ends not just with a cause, and not just with an uncaused cause, relatively speaking, but with what is absolutely speaking, a truly uncaused cause. Aquinas says, and this all men call God. Just to be clear, I have not given a full-blown version of any of Aquinas' arguments for God. At most, I've just gestured at like some of them. There isn't time here to go into all the details in part because the topic of this talk is rationality and, and belief in God more broadly. But what I've said does, I hope, give some sense of the general structure and strategy that Aquinas employs. Now, I have said that Aquinas ends his arguments by saying, and this, all men call God. Maybe you're thinking, that's too fast. An uncaused cause is admittedly much more than just a world maker. For example, since, it, since it's uncaused, we already have an answer to the question, who made it? Namely, if you ask that question, it shows you didn't understand. It's uncaused, so nothing made it. But still, maybe we aren't yet in a good position to use the G word. The mere fact that something is an uncaused cause might not be enough to call it God. Suppose you have spent months and years doing enough reading and thinking and discussing to conclude that some version of a causal argument, maybe you have concluded that Aquinas' arguments work in the form that he gave them. Maybe you have concluded that they work in a slightly improved version. Maybe you've concluded that Aquinas' arguments have massive flaws, but some other arguments work. Okay, what next? Before answering that, I do want to mention, if Aquinas' arguments turned out to be bad, he would not be angry at you for pointing that out. On the contrary, he would thank you. For one thing, he holds that if someone gives a bad argument for God, we shouldn't act as if everything is okay because at least they're on the right team. We should shoot the argument down, Aquinas says lest people think the belief in God is based on this bad reason. That's really interesting, right? Instead of just praising everybody who agrees with your conclusions, Aquinas says you should hunt down the people who give bad arguments for your conclusions and attack their arguments. It's, very, it's a very non-tribal strategy. For another thing, Aquinas would thank you because you helped him to get closer to the truth, right? If he thought his argument was good and then it wasn't, now he knows. This is the really great thing, by the way, about admitting that you are in error. The instant you admit it, you aren't in error anymore. 
Anyway, suppose you have found a good argument that arrives at the existence of an uncaused cause, an unreceiving source, something like that. What next? Philosophically speaking, what comes next? The short answer to the question is you have to keep thinking. Maybe that's good advice in general, maybe not always, but it has a special meaning here. If you think you have already proved the existence of God, you won't, still won't have proved everything that anyone might want to prove about God. It's tempting to fall into thinking like this. Hooray, there's an uncaused cause. God exists. His son Jesus is my personal savior. The Catholic Church is here to provide me with the fullness of the means of salvation. But if you think about it, all that stuff towards the end goes way, way beyond the idea that there's an uncaused cause, right? Like way beyond. So even though Aquinas uses the word God at the end of his arguments, all he really means there is an uncaused cause or whatever. That's all he's actually proved so far. Alternatively, if you were to conclude that he has jumped the gun and we shouldn't be calling this thing uncaused cause, God, that gives you even more reason to keep thinking. You, you should want to learn more about this strange, extraordinary being. It might turn out to be so extraordinary that it's God. The proofs, if they work, they only prove so much. There's an awful lot that they haven't proved. By the time he's given proofs for God, Aquinas has not proved that the uncaused cause has a mind. He, okay, so he hasn't proved that it has a mind. He hasn't proved that it loves us or that it even knows that we exist. For all we know, it's just some kind of force. Now, of course, Aquinas does think that God has a mind. He does think that God created us and all of that. But he believes those things only because of further logical reasoning. Each new point requires its own reason. In fact, it takes Aquinas 50 pages of highly compressed, you know, Thomas Aquinas writing to arrive at the conclusion that there's only one God. So until, like, you just assume there's one God, right? But it's 50 pages later that he gets to proving that, which means that through all the previous pages, for all we know, there's 100. That's one of the reasons why it takes a while to prove that God is actually our creator, because, like, which one? Okay, how does Aquinas take all these extra steps? Well, to answer that question, I'd have to go through them. And that would keep us here well into the evening. Um, so we can't do it. But I will make one very important point. To a significant extent, the further reasoning that Aquinas goes through is the unfolding of the idea of God arrived at in the initial arguments. What the arguments have in common all the different arguments he gives is that God is where the, bucks, where the buck stops. He's not just a cause, he's an uncaused cause. He gives, but what he gives, he didn't receive. He didn't receive it from anywhere else because just by his very nature, he always already has it. To put it differently, God is completely perfect. From that insight, Aquinas is able to go on 
and argue for a lot of things about God. If he's perfect, he has to have a mind, for example. So while it's true, as I said earlier, that Aquinas' arguments don't really give us a well-developed idea of a personal God, they do contain the seeds of that idea. And Aquinas gets those seeds to grow by further research. All right, now I want to say a few things about objections to God. For Aquinas, as for most medieval philosophers and theologians, it's standard operating procedure, not just to state your views and not just to give arguments for your views, but also to state objections to your views and to answer those objections. Wouldn't it be amazing if like politicians do that? Aquinas lists two objections to God's existence, and they are probably the two most important ones. First, that there's evil in the world, and that's enough to prove that there isn't any God. Second, that we don't need to believe in God because we already have good enough explanations of everything. In a way, Aquinas' answer to the second objection is already lurking in his arguments in favor of God. Aquinas thinks that it's false that we can give ultimate explanations of everything without appealing to an ultimate cause. Of course, we can give explanations of things without talking about God, but those explanations involve appealing to things that themselves need explanation. When we have done something like that, we have indeed given an explanation, but we haven't given an ultimate explanation. As for the first objection, Aquinas' answer goes well beyond anything contained in his arguments for God's existence. What he says in the particular text that I'm thinking of, this is in the, the Summa Theologiae. It's very short and it's very deep. I'm almost nervous to talk about it because it's such a big topic, I don't want to be glib. Someone, okay, so someone who thinks that evil is an objection to God apparently is thinking that the only way, the only proper way for God to deal with evil would be for God to destroy it. But Aquinas thinks there's another alternative. God can allow evil to exist and draw a greater good out of it. There's a lot packed into that thought. But at the very least, it shows that the topic of God and evil is more complicated than it might initially appear to be. It is indeed a mysterious idea that God might allow evil rather than just snuff it out. But it seems too quick to say that the existence of evil just flat out disproves God's existence, we're done. Aquinas' way of doing philosophy can get you some pretty substantial results. It can get you to the idea that God is good, that he is an immaterial spirit, that he is all powerful, that he knows everything, that he created everything, that he guides everything, and so on. It might even get you to the idea that you should love and reverence God and pray to him. However, it has to be admitted that it would still be a pretty cold and abstract and philosophical sort of religion. No burning bush, 
no crossing the Red Sea, no return from captivity in Babylon, no Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, no sending of the apostles to the whole world. So this philosophical approach won't get you to anything that most people would call religion. It's a philosophical religion, but you know, it's not a religion religion. For Aquinas, a religion religion requires getting beyond philosophy by accepting God's revelation. Revelation goes beyond human reason. It tells us things that we could never prove on our own. And it gives us utter confidence about things that would otherwise just be based on our own potentially flawed philosophical reasoning. It might be objected that relying on revelation is acting like a weakling. Shouldn't we do things under our own power? To that, I think Aquinas would give two answers. First, if God is really God, then he's so far above us that it's ludicrous to think that we could have a good understanding of him just on the basis of our own powers. Second, humans are weak and flawed. And if Aquinas says so, that counts for something because very few humans have ever been as smart and hardworking as he. So yeah, maybe humans are pretty limited, in which case it would make sense for them to rely on divine help if they can get it. In any case, whether you accept the possibility of divine help or not, it's worthwhile being aware, not only of the strengths of philosophical reason, but also uh, of its limitation. To be unaware of the limits of philosophy would be to be unphilosophical. Okay, let me conclude with a few concluding remarks. As you can tell from what's been said, Aquinas thinks that philosophical reason has a lot of power to learn about the existence and nature of God. At the same time, he also thinks that philosophical reason has serious limits. Some of those limits are practical. Philosophy takes a lot of time. It's easy to make mistakes. Some of those limits are limits in principle. God so transcends the human mind God so transcends the human mind that many important truths about God simply can't be discovered by humans without divine revelation. It's important to see both the power and the limits of philosophical reason. If all we see are the limits, then we will think that there can't really be any dialogue between Christian believers and non-believers. Religion would be exclusively based on faith and people who weren't believers would have no access to God in any way until they had accepted divine revelation. But if there's philosophy, there's like a sort of halfway place to meet, you see. There's another problem if philosophy has nothing to say about God. Of course, divine revelation is adequate. You don't want to deny that, right? If there's such a thing as divine revelation, it's good enough, okay, obviously. But it might not always be adequate for us. Revelation is hard to understand. Sometimes the Bible makes you think that God is an immaterial spirit, and then you turn the page and you read something about God's holy arm. Not to mention his footstool. 
philosophical reason can help us come up with intellectually solid and rigorous interpretations of scripture, which sometimes uses a lot of figurative and metaphorical language, right? You don't want to be end up in a place where you think that God like actually has an arm, but this requires thinking. The point isn't that the Bible needs philosophy, but that we need philosophy to understand the Bible. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, or, you know, Pope, later Pope Benedict, right? He said once that it wasn't a coincidence, it was divine providence that incarnation happened, that the Son of God became incarnate at a time and place when philosophy had made enough progress that people could figure out what had happened. Having praised philosophy, both for its ability to give us access to God without revelation and for its ability to help us understand revelation, let me now end with a reminder that it has limits. St. Augustine compared the philosopher without faith to a traveler who's on the top of a hill and who can, from there, catch a glimpse of the place that he wants to go, but who can't figure out how to get there. Only through revelation as a guide can we actually walk that path. So I think that Aquinas would say this, philosophy is important, but it's not enough to tell you everything you need to know. Thank you.